Support Narrative's independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative and check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe and download. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live. It's a Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. on the East Coast, 4 p.m. on the West Coast. And we've got a really interesting show today, all about uh, coronavirus, all about the COVID-19 data. Charles Piller is the investigative journalist for Science Magazine, also known as Science these days. Uh, how are you doing, Charles? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. LB's here, as always. Hi, LB. How are you doing? Um, you look well. fantastic. You look fantastic. I was just saying that <laughs> before we got on the air. I don't great. know why. I, I, I am getting a little bit more sleep, ironically. Um, That's helpful. So that could, that could be it. Yeah. And Eric Garland, how are you tonight? I am perfectly average. Thank you. So, we, so with this, this story began actually when uh, over the weekend. Was it the weekend? I can never remember the days anymore um when you posted a story out of uh ap which said that some of the data had been flawed around uh covid19 some of the data that we'd been reporting uh, and people had been reporting was flawed mostly the hospitalization data um and i sort of looked at that and i was curious about that i started looking a little bit more deeply into it and it uh, tweaked or uh, uh, reminded me about something that i posted a while ago about peter thiel being involved in the efforts of the white house to control coronavirus so i was intrigued by all of that information and dug around and i found charles's very thoughtful and smart investigative piece that he published in Science Magazine, all about why this data is so flawed. And so, Charles, why don't you, uh, just, you know, as basically as you can, um, walk us through some of the key elements of what you discovered? Because we're not talking about all the data. There's different types of data. There's there's death data, the death tolls that we see and that everyone sort of holds on to. So that's the where it must be at around two hundred and twenty nine thousand right now, but. We're also, what we're talking about is the hospitalization data, the, the amount of people that are in hospitals in the country. Exactly right. Uh, so my investigation covered a couple of different things, but the gist of it is that I looked at the manipulation of the CDC by the Trump administration, and in particular, the role of Deborah Burks, President Trump's coordinator of his White House task force on coronavirus. And the element of her actions that I concentrated the most on, as you pointed out, is the hospital data. So why do we care about this? Why is this important? Well, as you mentioned, there's all different kinds of data that's being used to analyze the nature of the pandemic and how concerned we should be and where the hotspots are and all the related issues. So that's critically important and being gathered by a number of different sources, unfortunately not being gathered that well by the CDC, which is naturally the source that people would uh, be prone to look for in a pandemic. But what the CDC had been doing is gathering detailed hospital data. And this is beds filled, beds filled with COVID patients, ventilators used, and a wide range of other characteristics of how the pandemic is affecting hospitals. This is very, very important because it's the hospitals where the, the most extreme cases of the pandemic are, are mm -hmm. 
leading to. And it's the exhaustion of hospitals, as we saw in New York earlier in the pandemic, and as we're now seeing in North Dakota and other places around the country that are running out of hospital resources. Having a big handle on that data is critically important to the federal response and to local responses to the pandemic. So that's the so, tipping point, really. When people start uh, packing up in the ICU wards and the ICU beds are full, that's when it gets really deadly. At least that's what we found out in New York. Exactly right. It's, it's, it's the tipping point for how well the country is managing the most severe aspects of the pandemic. The federal government moved the collection and analysis of this data from the CDC, an organization with decades of experience doing just that, and moved it over on Deborah Birx's control to a organization called Teletracking, a private company, to collect the data and then feed it in to a health and human services data system that was managed in large part by the company you mentioned, Palantir. So essentially a privatization of the hospital data collection function that historically had been done by CDC. Hmm, she's studying. So, this, is, this is all, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Dr. Burks, who we all recognize, there's a picture of her. She's well known for her scarves. Um, she held this meeting on July 16th or something like that, I think you said. She wasn't present there, but it was decreed at that meeting that her decision was to drop the CDC as the main collection agency and to go with a more, uh, this privatized uh, teletracking company. Exactly right. Uh, she made a, uh, a unilateral decision against the advice of the subject matter experts in the federal government to go ahead and switch over to the privatization plan for this hospital data. So if it had worked out well, and if there were really brilliant people analyzing the data and collecting it and had been able to build the systems to do so, she would have been heroic in that role. Instead, what happened is a gigantic degradation in the quality and amount of data that was coming in in the sense that a lot of data was missing. That's in part because she added a lot of very cumbersome work for individual hospitals, additional data fields that, that broke down their ability to respond in a timely fashion. And uh, secondly, the private contractors operating this system didn't have the kinds of relationships with thousands of hospitals all over the country that CDC had built up over many years. So what you had was a reduced ability to collect the essential data and then use it to understand where the federal response should be directed in these most critical areas of hospitals, emergency rooms, ICUs, et cetera. So there's uh, 5,500 hospitals, apparently, that uh, are tracked on a regular basis. And each of them was told in the middle of a pandemic, you have a brand new system, you have a brand new reporting system. And it's at all these categories, five pages, literally five pages, I just looked at them earlier on, of categories that you've you never had to fill in before. Some of them maybe, but not all of them. And suddenly you had all these people who had to take resources out of dealing with patients to track all this data and deliver it to um, to the CD, not to the CDC's replacement, which is teletracking. And they in turn turned it over to the um, to the Department of Health and Human Services. That's a lot of additional work and a lot of change in the middle of a crisis. I mean, it's it sounds like a stunning amount of, of, of new weight and responsibilities, quite onerous. 
Yes, um, I think you've you've summarized it well. Have uh, the uh, only change I would say is that it's actually sixty five hundred hospitals, closer to sixty five hundred. Oh, wow. And so um, one of the consequences of this is that um, uh, immediately the people who run hospitals and understand the public health system immediately were outraged by this because they realized that it was almost certain to cause a lot of hiccups in the delivery of this critical information to the federal government system. And so you had more than 100 public health organizations, hospital associations, and others who immediately said, no, no, do not, please do not do this. You had 21 attorneys general from uh, 21 states and uh, the District of Columbia who uh, immediately said, please don't do this, revert back to the time-honored CDC system where they have the subject area experts who know how to analyze the information and to gather it effectively. So there wasn't, weren't very many people around the country who were standing up and saying, yes, we need this change. It was mostly uh, the experts, the organizations, the public health officials around the country were alarmed and concerned. And what's happened is they've seen their fears realized in the sense that there's a lot of missing data, there's a lot of inaccuracies in the data, there's a lot of nonsensical information that's being posted by the federal government now in uh, organization and analysis of, of the data. And this raises questions about how well the government's going to respond. And I think we're seeing in places like North Dakota and elsewhere, where you have a surge in cases and you have a surge in hospitalizations and a desperate need for better information and better response from the government, it's harder to do this when you don't really know what's going on on the ground in a centralized way. Was it really within her realm of authority to make this call to sort of, to say it's not the CDC anymore? We're not going to be using that system, hospitals. You're going to be using this teletracker system. That's my first question. Could she have made that unilaterally? Or did, would she have needed to get that instruction from somebody or that go ahead? So question number one. Let's question just number get, two okay. is, what, what kind of money, <laughs> what, what kind of money did, did Teletracker get for this contract? This sounds like a government contract to me. Um, I do a lot of uh, research on government contracts and I would like to know the size of this contract, the monetary size of this contract, how much money this company was making because they were not a health company. They, they had, they were a real estate, the guy that's, he was not a health guy, he was a real estate guy. So what's a real estate guy doing <laughs> getting this big contract? I hate to laugh at it because it's so horrifying. I'm trying not to cry. I'm done crying on narrative. I'm trying not to cry <laughs> on narrative anymore. It's such horrible news we end up having to talk about here. I get emotional. But uh, was it really her authority to make that change, right, and, and pick that company at one? And two, how much money did they get for it? Okay, so the answer to the question is um, – it's a good question about the extent of her authority. So one of the things I did, of course, is I went to uh, Dr. Burks and to HHS, and I said, okay, uh, whose authority exactly was this? And, and was Dr. Burks pressured by the Trump administration to, uh, to give this contract, to, to turn it over to teletracking fully? She didn't give the contract, but to turn over the responsibility from CDC 
to the private company. And they didn't respond to that question. Um, however, what we do know is from assessing the organizational responsibilities within the White House task force and how they oversee the federal agencies that are integral to COVID-19 response, you see that Dr. Burks is the co-chair of the key units of that organizational structure that would dictate the actions of those federal agencies. And she, of course, is the coordinator of the overall task force. So whether she literally could do this completely on her own, well, we don't know for sure, but we do know that she flipped the switch. It was her decision okay. to go forward at the moment she did. Now, in, price? in response to your question about the money, uh, it's a shockingly low amount of money that they're paying mm -hmm. teletracking. It's only $10 million. And uh, um, in my opinion, it, it's, it's, it's but they really get all that data. Do they small. own all that data? Do they own all that data now? They get all the uh, data. Do they have ownership of that? I don't know that? what their rights are associated with the data, whether they, uh, they don't own it. It's data that is collected by the government, but whether they have the rights to use it and, and for other purposes, I do not know. The other contract that you should know about is the Palantir contract, which is, mm -hmm. so teletracking's gathering the data Palantir is organizing and helping analyze the data. And their contract is $25 million. Both of these are exclusive contracts. So these are the two companies involved. No Were bid. other companies up for the bid? Was it no, no bid? Was well, it no that, bid? that was sort of an interesting question. Um, uh, it was a no bid contract for teletracking. But then the HHS came back and said, no, 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 it was a contract was bid by several bidders, but they wouldn't release any information about the bidding process or who the other bidders were. So we are sort of left in the dark about that. Also, answering your question about running, teletracking. Running, okay, real quick on that one. Who was running HHS communication at that point in time when you made that request of them? About the no well, it was just a, it was the same folks that are in charge of it now. It was only, you know, about are you three sure? Ago. Oh, okay. Thanks. Yeah. Sure. Thanks for asking yeah. about Michael Caputo. Was he involved yes, in I any? Was. No. Uh, Caputo, Caputo was gone by then. Okay. Um, he was gone. Okay. And, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He, it, for listeners who don't know about Caputo, he was the former head of communications for Health and Human Services who uh, flagrantly and, and, <laughs> and often. Uh, uh, manipulated CDC and other federal agencies to essentially for political purposes for the Trump administration. And Caputo um, famously kind of uh, flamed out a, a few weeks ago where he went on a medical leave and acknowledged, um, acknowledged some uh, mental health issues following um, his claim that the deep state was uh, operating within the CDC to undermine the Trump administration. So it's a strange, strange story about that high-level government official. Yeah, that was really strange. He had weird dreams of the shadows were moving in on him or some strange, yeah. some I mean, strange and, and, thinking. And the, he had fingernail cancer that leads to Russian window cancer. Oh, oh there you go. <laughs> um, well, listen, thinks, I, we're not going to do that, but he was, it is important too. Our, our followers are pretty well informed, um, Charles, but just to mm -hmm. also reiterate, Michael Caputo is, it, it did work for the Kremlin. He did. Mm -hmm. He worked in uh, public relations uh, for uh, Vladimir Putin himself. That's and part Yeltsin. of his resume. Just, and Yeltsin. So, 
So it should now. be noted that the contract, that's really interesting, and I'll show you some more about Caputo in a second. There's also, the contract was just recently renewed. So there was all this chaos about getting all the data in. And then the Senate uh, wasn't really consulted, and the contract was just renewed for another $10.2 million. So it's a 10.2, I think, over just a short period of time. Uh, what does that mean? It's a quarter, really. So they could be getting as much as $40 million a year if it's going to be renewed every quarter. Here's a look at that uh, organizational chart that you that you had in your piece, which is really interesting because you can see that Burks is is responsible for this unified coordination group. This is an organizational chart that has never been made public before we published it. Uh, was uh, leaked to me by someone inside the uh, this apparatus. Um, so you see that the way in which the um, the way in which this uh, organization is is organized for uh, the entire COVID response is in these four categories. The physician advisory group has no real responsibilities other than, as it says, advice. Uh, the unified coordination group uh, and the operation warp speed, which are two critical components of the federal response, are uh, both co-chaired by Dr. Burks. And where it says White House, that, you know, essentially she's there. She's in the White House also as the coordinator of the overall effort. So you're seeing that um, her areas of responsibility are quite broad and her powers are quite large. The Unified Coordination Group is over CDC and FDA in regard to the COVID response. And it looks like Anthony Fauci is more of an advisor than a, than a full-on member of that team. He has no real power. Uh, several people who were in positions of high authority within CDC told me that essentially the physician advisory group is nothing more than window dressing. And I might add that that's their words, not mine. Mm. The other uh, names that people obviously notice is Jared Kushner, who seems to be involved in every piece of this coronavirus mess. And uh, Adam Bowler, who is a friend of Jared Kushner, who's also in charge of a, of a U.S. Um, development bank or corporation, as they call it. So those are interesting yeah. uh, names to see here, especially because they tie in later on to Peter Thiel, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, so I was struck by the this from your, uh, from your article. It said, why are they not listening to us? A CDC official at the meeting recalls thinking. Several CDC staffers predicted the new data system would fail with ominous implications. Burks has been on a months-long rampage against our data. One texted to a colleague shortly afterwards. Oh, my God. Good effort and luck getting the hospitals to clean up their data and update daily. So they knew this disaster was coming. People who were aware of how the system works knew this disaster was coming. They didn't just know, they were warning against it over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I, I think um, the proof of this concern, I, I hope very much that we do not see this concern borne out in deaths and worse hospital experiences, but the proof of it will be coming up in the late fall and early winter when we see a possible combination flu and COVID pandemic. And uh, right now, we're starting to see cases rising in cold weather areas of the country, and we're starting to see this, this kind of experience in uh, North Dakota and elsewhere where uh, because of a problem in the data pipeline, it's contributing to an inability to coordinate resources at the hospital level around the country. So if it worsens and if hospitals are less equipped to do their job effectively because of these these uh, data lapses, if you want to call them that, um, 
then I think these fears by uh, CDC people, very, very important, uh, responsible CDC people, uh, will be borne out. And I, again, I sincerely hope that they're wrong, but all the signs are pointing to the validity of these concerns. It will worsen. I mean, we're pretty much seeing that worsening happening daily. Um, and we haven't even hit the biggest part of the season. And you can see the, the, the spike growing. So, I mean, it's almost certain that it's going to get worse before it gets better. So we are heading into a a calamitous situation, it feels like, looking at your story and looking at the data where we're no, we don't have any good way of tracking the things that saved, you know, New York is the example we all look to, but the, we don't know how many ventilators are needed or being used, how many beds are available, how many masks are around, available, how much of the right masks are out, what other PPE is necessary. We just have no idea of whether the data that we're seeing is is accurate and, and what it means for patients ultimately is that, they, you know, you could be taken in a distressed state to a hospital and find out that that ER is, is or that ICU is, is filled to capacity. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. Um, yesterday, the uh, HHS released for the first time a look at what individual hospitals are reporting. And um, well, so this was sort of an interesting characteristic way in which uh, HHS is releasing information. They show which hospitals are reporting information and which ones are not reporting it, but they don't say what's being reported. So for example, the issues that are of great concern to people in local areas are thinking, if I end up in the hospital, what is my hospital ready for me? Is my hospital ready to handle a surge in COVID cases if that should unfortunately occur in my local area? And unfortunately, you can't tell from the data that's being released by HHS. You can tell whether the hospitals are reporting if they have adequate PPEs. You can tell if the hospitals are reporting if they have adequate beds or they don't. But you can't see what the actual reporting data is. And so people on the ground don't know whether their local hospitals are doing well or poorly, whether they need more help or whether they're in great shape and able to handle any search that comes along in the community. So if you're in a high risk group, it's something to really think about. You know, um, your the data you may be getting may be completely inaccurate. So, you know, think about all the, the provisions you have to make to figure out what happens in the case of you becoming sick with COVID in these next few few months as this horrible yeah. winter is, a, is coming upon us. Eric, you've had a little bit of time to research as well what's been going on in, in your neck of the woods because uh, this all sort of came to light out of, out of where you are. That's right. Um, you know, the first state that was reporting the, the failures of data and they're like, we're having trouble with data entry, which given the story that Mr. Pillar here is talking about, that it seems like there's a lot left out in that, um, that local explanation. Oh, there was just some, a data flaw and a flaw entering it. So, oh, it looks like we were underreporting here in Missouri. And I live in St. Louis, but uh, both Kansas City and St. Louis hospitals uh, are experiencing, uh, you know, our health, our local health officials are breaking into tears. Mm -hmm today as they give their press conferences as Chicago's was. Mm -hmm. And this is the same state that had all those people partying at the Lake of the Ozarks, like nothing was happening because governor Mike Parson said, Hey, wear a mask. If you want have summer, how you want. And in the middle of that summer, this, this change uh, that Mr. Pillar is talking about took place. And the data, the data, which just sounds nice and uh, uh, nice and neutral we weren't talking about how many people were actually being hospitalized. And if you look at the data that we have so far globally, 
um, you know, there's 80, there's of all the people that get it, 80% don't show any symptoms at all. And then the people that show light to medium symptoms. But if you are in the, in the category that has to be hospitalized, you're in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you, you, you have, depending on your age, you stand a fairly low chance of leaving. Um, that is the data that, has, that was shifted out, changing horses midstream mm-hmm. in July. And the first state where that was revealed was Missouri. And it's very interesting to see that Peter Thiel's Palantir is doing the data analytics there since Thiel was the number one donor to uh, Senator Josh Hawley's campaign to become attorney general in 2016. And it's almost like you get this tight little group, uh, especially when you look at that chart of uh, quote responsibility that has Kushner, Kushner's college roommate, um, Burks, Mark, you know, Esper, it's almost like there's a, I don't know, one starts to think conspiratorially about how something we already had infrastructure to do well uh, that we planned for for years, all of a sudden gets swapped out to a company run by a real estate partner of Donald Trump and the Trump organization. Mm-hmm. So really I'm, is, I'm interested in hearing more from Mr. Kohler. It really is interesting. Um, here's the company teletracking. You know, their main sort of enterprise is about creating these command centers in case of emergencies. Um, it's a little bit like carbon, the other uh, sort of uh, real-time prevention or crime prevention company. So they have a similar kind of um, mandate, although they have been doing some hospital tracking and and this is what they've landed up doing. And the 70 to 124 was what NPR originally said was the number of elements that they increased from. So there was originally hospitals had to gather 70 elements daily. Now they had to gather 124 elements. All of that, according to a government report, it was about one and a half uh, hours per hospital. So I can't read that number there because my eyesight's so bad, but it's in the 3 million hours of additional resources that were being deployed in Mm -hmm. order to get this done. And if you look at the actual performance of this new system, the teletracking put out, you know, in July 14th, for example, this is Arizona, 3,205 patients, 24% inpatient beds. This is the CDC data. This is the data before the new data was introduced. Then, then teletracking came along. It had fewer patients. Maybe that's possible. But look at the occupancy rate. Suddenly, it's 42%. That makes no sense. Obviously, we're seeing something either counted completely differently or there, uh, there's just something wrong with the data collection. It just looks like that. And, you know, if you happen to be needing a, a bed and uh, that 24 to 42% gap could mean, you know, life or death for you. So, Charles, can you tell us a little bit more about the teletracking and, and, and their... Uh, and in their background? Sure. Well, uh, teletracking, um, this company does have experience with helping hospitals manage their data systems. So they're not completely coming from, for example, real estate, although uh, indeed the the primary owner of teletracking is a real estate guy and a, a longtime Republican donor. New York um, real estate that, guy. And, and that did raise some yeah. some concerns among some that there may be a relationship there with um, between this guy and the Trump administration. There, there's certainly um, the N- NPR had an excellent uh, report on that. That's pretty interesting, raising some questions about that. So what we've had is a situation where this is one very important, but for sure, only one of many ways in which the Trump administration has used 
political goals to undermine uh, the, the federal agencies, the professionals that are so critical on public health issues, FDA and CDC in particular. And so let me, if I may, just use a comparison. When, when President Trump removed the country from the Paris Climate Accords or uh, withdrew from the World Health Organization, you know, you could easily say perhaps Trump will lose the election. And when Biden gets in, he's almost certain to put the United States back into the World Health Organization and to renew our commitment to the Paris Climate Accords. But the question that that remains in those situations is, who's going to trust the word of America after this sort of back and forth mm-hmm. process? Will the, the credibility of the US government be, be harmed for an extended period and maybe for, for a generation as a result of this kind of uh, behavior internationally? I wanna just draw a comparison to what's going on with CDC and FDA. When these agencies are undermined repeatedly for political reasons, when they are manipulated to make political uh, goals higher than their scientific goals, when the agency heads, including uh, Dr. Redfield of CDC, tend to uh, absorb the White House commands and proceed along lines that are widely regarded as serving the White House political goals above public health. This dramatically reduces the faith the American people have in these agencies. And we've already seen it in polling data. So the question is, we're going to get through COVID eventually. There will be a recovery from this pandemic, but it's not going to be the last pandemic we face. We need those agencies to have public confidence. We need those agencies' words to carry weight with the American public so that people will take the effective vaccines when they come on the market and that they will believe these agencies in the future when the next pandemic comes around. And what I fear and what many public health experts fear is that these sorts of intrusions of politics into the agency operations could affect the long-term confidence in their ability to do things. Which is so tragic because the CDC has such a pristine, amazing reputation around the world. And now and now they have to combat all of this. Um, Eric, and there'll be any other questions before we move on? Because there's a whole bunch of other areas, but I know this must be questions you have. I'd like to talk about just one statistic that's in your article, Mr. Peller, about um, the, the difference between the data missing from the old CDC system that covered 37,000 hospitals and the, the new the new system that's been put in by uh, this uh, bootstrap organization with the uh, usual suspects here. It looks like uh, the HS, uh, NHSN, which was the CDC system, if, if I'm following correctly, showed right. three to six, three to six percent missing data um, for such items as COVID-19 inpatient bed occupancy and ventilator use. And that's the most serious time for uh, you know, the people who are sick with COVID and teletracking showed 36 to 57% missing data on that. Yeah. These were based on, um, leaked documents from, uh, internal CDC reports that were widely shared within the federal government, uh, apparatus for COVID. So many, many people had access to this information, uh, within the government, but I was the first one who was able to obtain a copy outside. And yes, you're exactly right. Really, you're, you're looking at during the time periods compared, and this goes up through uh, the end of September, you're talking about an order of magnitude more missing data 
collected by the teletracking system than by the CDC's own system. So it's very concerning because missing data means unknowns. Unknowns mean we don't know where to steer federal resources to meet capacity and to assist local areas when they have the kind of surges we're talking about. And there's a 30%, 40% gap in, in, in what we're talking about here. So that's, that's a large amount of resources that need to be deployed quickly if it's, if it's that wrong. Indeed, it's, it, it's worrisome because um, getting ahead of the, the pandemic, getting ahead of the need is really what this is all about. Uh, what we're talking about is modeling where things are going so we can be there, so that the resources can be there, so that the, there can be a nimble medical response and to prevent the overwhelming of local resources. Mm-hmm. And the only way you're going to know that is by, by having accurate, complete, fairly complete data and being able to extrapolate that to understand what local needs are and to respond effectively. Mm-hmm.